Hi, my name is Evan Kirshen, and this is the Brass History Project. The interview that you're about to hear with Ricardo Simeon is absolutely phenomenal. You know, when people talk about history, one often thinks about things that are old or things that happened in the past. But Ricardo Simeon's work with 3D printed instruments is really quite unique because it bridges the gap between the past, the present, and the future in a really interesting way. As we'll talk about in the interview, 3D printing can be used for many things. For example, it can be used to make playable copies of ancient instruments. It could also be used to make old instruments better, and it can also serve to create entirely new and different instruments that are totally impossible to create using traditional methods. With all that said, I really hope you enjoy this interview with Ricardo Simeon. I figured we'd um, open up just a little bit by um, talking about how you got started with uh, your 3D instrument printing adventure and how you got started uh, just in music in general. Your primary instrument is cornetto, correct? First of all, thank you for the invitation, Evan. So how did I get started with this? Um, my main instrument, I would say, is a cornetto. I actually started playing the recorder and then moved into uh, other wind instruments. And, but I also have an engineering background and I also studied cultural management and somehow all of these fields came together when I realized uh, what was going on with 3D printing and the near possibilities. It, it, it's not a new technology, it has been developing for many decades, but it, it was always something very expensive, very fancy and for small expensive things and rather than practical large objects. And at a certain point, I saw that the, the, the curves crossed the profitability point that we could produce things like a wind instrument uh, for an acceptable price with, the, with acceptable uh, characteristics like density, weight, flexibility, resistance, not being poisonous, which is quite important in this case. So I started making experiments and that took off by itself rather quickly. Hmm. And it was a very impressive process in terms that I decided to make just one experiment. I received the, the printing of the first prototype on Wednesday and I was playing that thing on Saturday in a concert. It, it, there was not a very long learning curve. Hmm. Interesting. Now you mentioned before poisonous. Did you have, uh, I guess that might be one of the dangers of 3D printing, right? If you got a, a poisonous Cornetto in the mail, right? You, I guess you want to avoid that at all costs, right? <laughs> yes, that, that's an aspect that not many people take into consideration when they're playing with 3D printers now, which is quite dangerous also. I have seen very silly things being now done during the COVID pandemics with 3D printed objects being used as part for respirators and so on. Uh, ventilators, how do you say it in English? Ventilators. Ventilators, yeah. And, and that's something you should be more aware of. And the, so there are many parameters that you need to take into account when you choose material for any project involving 3D printing and whether if you're going to put this object in your mouth or you're going to be touching it for a long time and so on. It, it's um, also how biocompatible it is. It's, uh, crucial in this case. And that limits the amount of materials that we have for certain pieces, of course. And 
I also had to learn that the hard way myself, uh, looking first for the perfect surface and waterproof elements and so on, and then realizing, oh, actually, this is toxic. I should, uh, I shouldn't produce mouthpieces with it. Um, but the availability of materials is widening by the day, and there are many biocompatible materials now, if not directly biological materials being 3D printed as well. Such as? Well, uh, this is not really new, actually. If, if you happen to lose one ear, uh, already since some years in fancy hospitals, they are going to make a 3D scan of your other ear and then 3D print a foam with that shape mirrored. And then they are going to take cells from your skin and cultivate them into that foam so that you're going to get a 3D printed ear of your own skin with the correct shape mirror, mirroring the other one. And that can be implanted into your skull. Huh. Interesting. I'm sh have you gotten any commissions for that? <laughs> people ask well, you to print body parts for them? <laughs> not really my area of expertise. But funnily enough, um, 3D printers are mostly being developed for such uses like uh, dental uh, pieces or osteo pieces and so on. And I'm always looking for the alternative use within cultural music, artistic areas of these machines which were developed for dentists or uh, surgeons and so on. Hmm. Interesting. Now, uh, one question that sort of immediately comes to mind as I'm thinking about this is how how is this sort of 3D printing, especially the 3D printing that you do for instruments, different than say, um, you know, what a regular person can do with a 3D printer that they bought off Amazon? You know, obviously there's a lot of consumer 3D printing more so than in the past happening nowadays. How is this sort of 3D printing different than that sort of 3D printing? Yeah, that's a good question. The first thing that you hear about 3D printing is that there's one machine which can do anything. And most people rem remain within that understanding of the technology. Uh, then you realize actually it's many machines which can do many things. And for many machines, I mean, many types of printers, many sizes. Basically, you need one new printer for each new material. And for each size of production, you need a different machine as well, even if it's the same material. So the 3D printer, which can 3D print uh, your Yoda sculptures uh, on your desktop, and the 3D printer, which can print an entire house out of uh, concrete, are completely different animals. And so the game is not finding uh, only the right material, but also finding the right printing technology and the right machine for the use. And so that it's a very complex matrix where the desktop 3D printers, uh, which you can buy for $500 and so on, uh, are very cute. It's, it's brilliant that you can do experiments like that at home and you can print little gadgets and little pieces. That 3D printing technology is rather limited in many regards because it, it works with a molten, uh, molten plastic uh, thread, like making a sculpture with the toothpaste uh, by pressing one extreme, just a little bit more refined. 
so that has many limitations in terms of the shapes that you can do and the kind of surface you're going to get. Um, but uh, when it comes to trying to make very complex shapes or interlocking pieces or musical instruments with a certain surface and so on, then you need some sort of machinery that you wouldn't like to have at home. Um, and that doesn't mean that, that, that those little cute 3D maker bots and, and so on are, are not fantastic for, for what you can do now at home. But um, given the size that they can print and the availability of materials and the technology they use, uh, it's rather limited if you want to do larger stuff. So how does the technology that you use for instruments, how is it different than the, the toothpaste model, as you kind of put it, <laughs> model of 3D printing that most of us are used to? Do you use the same process for all of your instruments, or is there a different process for, say, the Cornetto as opposed to the ukulele, as opposed to your special orders and so on? Well, the, the game then becomes finding the right material and the right printer uh, and the right technology for the right project. So I use different printers for the different projects. That's why I don't own any printer myself because I would need to have many printers in my workshop. So it's a lot more efficient if I am in touch with the people who have those different printers, which cost maybe millions, and that's not a joke, um, and rent it for a little while rather than uh, having it myself most of the time unused. Um, and the different 3D printing processes, are, now there's just such a big array of possibilities. There are the machines which uh, throw gas. They are the ones with jets of multi-material. They are the ones which combine that with a UV lighting at the same time. They are the ones which use a gel and UV lighting and they print upside down and they take the model out of this gel pool. They're the ones which combine that with oxygen. There are the ones which use laser, layer by layer. And that is kind of the most reliable one for the most of the projects I do. Because then you are completely free in terms of the shapes that you can produce and you can produce very smooth, uh, thin objects for a reasonable price. But the amount of different technologies is just stunning now. And you, you hear of a new thing every day. And when someone hits a good idea, like the guys from Carbon3D who presented it a, as a startup, an idea for a new printer which was quicker um, and more reliable in many aspects, uh, Adidas and Ford said, oh, we want to help everyone. So they invested 200 million, so they developed that in an industrial size. Um, so that, that is happening right now. It's quite impressive. Wow. And yeah, I, I'm very impressed also with the strength of some of these instruments. Uh, I, I love in particular your video, the cornet, your recent video, I'm not sure how recent it is, but your Cornetto key stress test video. You finally, I, first of all, I love that you created a keyed Cornetto. What a joy. Finally, Cornetto players around the world can rejoice in knowing that they won't have to stretch, break their fingers to, <laughs> you know, to at least get started on the instrument, which I think is cool. But you do some pretty ridiculous things with this instrument, you know. Uh, 
if, if you're listening at home and you haven't seen this video, watch it. It's abs- you, you must see it to believe it. Uh, you hit, you know, you use the Cornetto to hit tennis balls. You run it over with a car. You drop it off buildings. I saw a picture of you actually on your website not too long ago of you standing on the Cornetto and the Cornetto is holding your entire weight, which I think is, it's really cool. Uh, so how, how can these things be so strong? One and two, have you, have you ever broken one of these instruments before by testing the limits of how far uh, a Cornetto could be strained, so to speak? Yes, I have managed. I was very proud of myself. <laughs> um, this material, the, the main material that I'm using for the Cornetti, it's uh, SLS, so laser sintered nylon, which is very robust and flexible. Um, but it's more flexible than than robust in a way. So if you apply a certain strength slowly, like standing on it, um, it's going to bend way further than you would expect before breaking. Like it it would require more than my weight to to break one. But instead, if I uh, bang it quickly against the floor, it may snap into two pieces. Because it, it doesn't, it doesn't have the time to to flex and distribute the the energy, um, so you can break them. But it's actually this material is described by the three D printer three compa- D printing companies around the world now like strong and flexible, and that's a good description. But yes, it, it it's impressive how how strong it is. No piece of wood would withstand something like that. Is that the first time you broke one of your instruments was by slamming it up against the floor? Was that the first time that <laughs> your Cornetto broke in half? <laughs> trying to remember. Well, I, for a while when I still didn't have access to a way of making them in different colors in one piece, then I produced them into two pieces glued together. And those were easier to break at the, at the joint, let's say, when, when the point where they were glued together because then the two edges were very thin. So those were the first ones that broke, but you still needed to apply something that you wouldn't do uh, with a wooden instrument anyhow. Hmm, interesting. And regarding the keys, yeah, that was a funny, a funny project. There has been so much interest for the keys for many, many reasons. Not many people have asked me to produce instruments with keys for them. Um, I think that people who play the cornetto really like the direct touch of the holes on your fingers. But for people with smaller hands, and the cornetto requires pretty large hands, it's maybe the only alternative, actually. Hmm. Interesting. And you mentioned before about different colors. So if someone wanted to purchase a 3D printed cornetto, they could 3D, they can theoretically get it in pink or red or green. Do you do all the colors or, and also is color an arbitrary sort of factor or does it have actually have effect, an effect on the 3D printing process? Okay. Yeah, there are three questions there. The first one, um, for a while I offered a big array of colors. And then I realized that 
how different the pigments uh, are and react. So there, it's not by chance that we don't put red clothes together with the other ones when we do our washing. Because red is amazingly unstable. And that happened also with the Cornetti. I realized that the, the drops coming out of the instrument were kind of pinkish. Even though they were sealed with uh, acrylic on top of them, the, the red still managed to get out and, and wash off and, and get things dirty. So now I'm basically offering, out of practical reasons, uh, white or black, and because black is very stable as a pigment and white is the natural color of this uh, uh, nylon material. And I'm looking for more stable pigments for the other colors. So there are a few instruments in, in wild colors around, which I produce. Right now, I'm not offering them. I'm searching for better alternatives. And then um, how do you print in color? Well, there are two options. You either use the material without color. And there are some amazing 3D printers now, which have many, many colors, like, like toners, like the color printers and they can really produce the objects with uh, like, like with the amount of course that you usually get on a, on a good screen. And now that there is this, this generation of 3D printers, which are described as in the same way that your screens are usually described. Like, so this is a 4K printer because it has so many colors. Um, so that's one way. The other way is to uh, print in white and then uh, dye them, which is, way cheaper, of course, than, than 3D printing with all of the colors. And then you, you ask, well, there's one third question that you didn't ask, and whether that makes a difference for the sound. And the question, the, the answer is actually yes and no. If, if you do a blind test, it doesn't. But if you do a test where people see the colors, they always find that the different colors even though it's the same material, the same model, the same printer, it sounds totally different. And not by chance, most of the people say that, for instance, darker instruments have a darker color, a darker sound, um, more male sound. And lighter instruments, they are brighter in sound, more female, and so on. And that's just pure synesthesia. It's so funny the, the way that works. That's fascinating. Does that come into play when people order instruments? You know, if they want us a, a quote unquote brighter sound, I guess they they order the the brighter colored instruments if they want a darker sound. <laughs> Does that happen sometimes? Well, no one has ever comment, made a comment in, in that way, but I'm pretty sure that when they are choosing, they are thinking those terms most, most of the times. Huh, interesting. Now, of course, you know, if you if you look on the website, you know, which has so many different instruments. I, I really just love scrolling through and seeing what varieties and what kind of different things you make. One of the things that kind of popped out to me right away is a cornetto player. Well, I, I use that term very loosely. I kind, I'm a cornetto hobbyist, let's say. I'm definitely not a professional cornetto player. I play trumpet. But, you know, the, let me see if I could pronounce this correctly, the perfetti. Am I saying that correctly? The Perfetti. Yes. I, that immediately stood out to me as being a really cool instrument. You know, and for obviously this is not going to be a video. This is just going to be an audio podcast. But just so I can describe what I'm looking at, it's kind of an, a more ergonomic cornetto, which I think is 
really cool. You don't seem to have changed, you know, necessarily the fundamentals, like as in like with the keyed Cornetto, for example, you add the keys and that's, you know, I guess in some way changing it quite drastically. But this, it kind of seems like if, if the Cornetto were to evolve, right, this seems like the natural evolution of what, you know, a Cornetto might evolve into. So I guess my question for you is, um, how did you go about designing this particular instrument? And, you know, why why, why hasn't the, the Cornetto evolved into this? You know, in all the museum samples that I've kind of seen and all the museum um, you know, specimens that I've seen and Cornettos that were made over time, it seems like Cornettos have just held one basic shape and one basic sort of style. I mean, apart from Ute Cornettos and some of the smaller variations, of course, but generally it's been the same thing. You know, why hasn't it evolved over the years and what kind of spurred you to make this particular instrument? Okay, I'm very glad that you used the word evolution there without any problem. Evolution is a, it's a difficult word for many people, not only because of cultural, religious reasons, but also because they associate uh, evolution with getting better, as more evolved always means uh, a better version. And actually evolution, it's just a description of the way different iterations which have little variations, either are being selected or not for the next generation, which doesn't necessarily lead to a better version, but it certainly leads to a more fitting one to the requirements of the environment. And in this case, the requirements of the environment is what musicians want to play at concert, what composers want to have in, in, in their pieces. So an instrument which gets to be chosen to be played and to be written for is one which certainly makes it to the next generation. And that's just pure evolution. And that's why you can put the musical instruments uh, in, in a tree of life in the very same way you can uh, do with uh, biological entities. Um, so the funny thing is that the evolution of instruments mostly stopped a couple of hundreds, hundreds of years ago. And that's quite an, an embarrassing thing, I would say at this point. Because if you take the car from 1910 and you take the car from 2010, it's evident that it has been uh, improved. It has changed through many attempts. Um, many generations of customers have said like, I like this, I don't like this. So the car, you, you, someone who was able to drive a car from 1910 will be able to drive a car or will learn to drive a car from 2010 rather quickly. But I guess that that person would say rather quickly as well, well, I understand why we have this version now instead of the other one, because this one has a much lighter wheel and it, it travels way faster with less gasoline. It doesn't have heat problems and so on. Uh, you may still prefer the old version because you're romantic, because you like old-fashioned items, because you like the design, and that's totally fine. But on every area around, if you look at computer, keyboards, um, cars, whatever, things have been evolving, and musical instruments haven't. A violin today looks almost the same that a violin from 1650. And that requires an explanation because it's almost the only area 
in the whole world where something like that has happened. And you cannot tell me that it's the ultimate design and it cannot get better because if that was true, musicians wouldn't hurt themselves playing. And I don't know any musician who doesn't have or didn't have at any, at any point he sees her career some sort of injury because of playing, because the instruments are not ergonomic or not ergonomic enough or not personalized enough or there are different types of hands and so on. And keyboards, keyboard instruments, they only have 90 degree angles. That, why is that? Why is it that, that all wind instruments are based on straight circular bores? And the only answer, if you're honest, is that, that we developed them that way because that was the only way they could be produced hundreds of years ago. You could only drill round holes in a straight line. You could only build instruments with 90 degree angles all over the place because that was what you could cut with a saw. But nowadays you can produce any shape whatsoever, any inner bore whatsoever. You could do any ergonomic thing and it's still not happening because we are stuck mentally with the designs from Stradivari time. And that's just plain embarrassing. So within my very limited uh, niche within the world of instrument making, I'm trying to slowly push those boundaries. And taking an instrument like the Cornetto and thinking, well, now that I don't have to do it octagonal or now that I don't have to have only straight lines, I can make any curve. Could I fit those curves better to the shape of the hands? Yes, or I can try. And then people can tell me whether if they think that's the case or not. And if many people start liking these versions, maybe they are going to be the standard shapes within some years, or maybe not. So yeah, that's a long answer to your evolution uh, analysis of the, the what I have been doing. That's really fascinating. And also, it's it's interesting how you say that, you know, you mentioned how instruments haven't evolved, you know, for many hundreds of years and how it's kind of the only sort of or one of the only places where this has happened is in musical instruments. Although you do make a point of saying on your website, you know, um, that, you know, these 3D instruments are not necessarily meant to replace, you know, um, traditional, let's say, wooden carved cornettos or traditional um, instruments of different types. So how do you reconcile that difference, you know, that need to evolve right the need to produce better instruments which for example i think the perfetti you know i've never played it before but it looks like it would play much better than a regular cornetto right you could tune it much better it's easier to hold you know why shouldn't everyone be playing the perfetti you know why should people still be playing um on his on you know regular historical cornetti or regular historical instruments or shouldn't they? Maybe we should should we throw all the way be uh <laughs> should we throw all the regular instruments away? Not at all. The the point is to enlarge the amount of possibilities and choices that you have as a performer, rather than uh, forget the tradition or limit it to the, only the new version. The point would be that you have now more choices rather than just one model and also supporting that within the 
already traditional uh, environment. Let me give you an example from a different instrument. If you are going to play the Baroque oboe or the old oboes, uh, that, that wasn't a unified design, the way the oboes are mostly unified nowadays in the orchestra, in the modern orchestra. Like in the Baroque time, in, an Italian oboe looked different than a German oboe, than a French oboe, and so on. And there were different sizes within different years and different styles because they were doing experiments in parallel in places far away from each other with, without the internet. So the different evolutionary lines could move in parallel better than today in a certain way. But in practical terms, if you are passionate about the Baroque oval and you want to go to study it in a place where you can learn that, and you're a student, if you're lucky, you have two instruments. You have one for 40 and one for 15. And if you really wanted to study the thing, and if you really wanted to see the difference between a Denner and Stensby and a French oboe and a Schaum and a pre-classical, and you wanted to play at 430, which is a pre-classical pitch, or if you wanted to play with a Bach oboe, you would need 10, maybe 20 instruments, and no one can have that. And I happen to live in Basel, where we have a very good early music school, which has more instruments than most places for their students. So they have a few wooden instruments. So if someone needs a, a crazy oboe of a certain type, maybe there is one that you can rent. But then, uh, for because of insurances, you cannot take that instrument to a different country and they get destroyed and, and so on and so forth. And you don't have 20 for each student. So for the price of renting one instrument for one semester, you could print 10 instruments. And then you can just take them to the beach and or practice in your bathtub. And, and that's not stopping students from getting the real wooden thing eventually. Actually, it's opening their ears and their hands and their brains to getting in touch with a different model, with many different models, and to await their interest for this research into more models. So the chances that they are, when, when they become rich and famous, that they are going to buy uh, wooden instruments of all of those different models and sizes is way higher if they have used this intermediary research phase uh, with uh, 3D printed instruments. Hmm. That's fascinating how you, how you put that. I've never thought about that in quite that way before. Although the, the, the whole question, I suppose, of playing historical instruments kind of comes up, right? Especially when you work in museums. I see uh, that you've done a lot of work, especially on, uh, I see you've copied bone flutes before, ancient bone flutes, and uh, ancient cornettos as well, cornettos that you really can't uh, play for people who are listening, right? If you've never been to a museum before, <laughs> you know, if you want to go to a museum and play an old cornetto, chances are they won't let you do that nowadays because it's made of wood. And, you know, the spin, the saliva, and the condensation is going to destroy the instrument. They used to. I mean, they used to let you play the cornetto back in the day, but not anymore. <laughs> So I guess a good follow-up question, I suppose, is what what sort of interesting museum work have you been involved with um, with regards to reproducing historical instruments? What are the challenges 
particularly in that sort of field, as opposed to creating a new instrument per se, or trying to improve just on, you know, the design of an old instrument? It's hmm. a good question. So I, I was lucky enough to be able to play some, some of these wooden instruments directly in Italy. Um, it's funny the way it works in Italy, by the way, because uh, for many museums where they have either instruments or old scores, if you bring a recommendation letter from a re uh, renowned teacher or researcher, they're going to allow you, as you have been recommended, to touch the things directly. Hmm. But then when those researchers go themselves, they are not allowed because they don't have a recommendation letter for any, from anyone. And that has happened many times. Anyway, so <laughs> by getting a letter, I was allowed a couple of times to play the instruments in Verona, where half of the best cornet in the world are, historical ones. And the, it, it's very interesting to see and, and touch and play the, the original thing. Uh, rather than the copies that have been done afterwards. In the case of the Cornetto, the copies that have been done afterwards have been heavily modified. Even though they, they, they say this is a copy of instrument X, then you play instrument X and then you say actually, well, mm, um, this is not really the same. And then you can all even develop a whole new version of historically informed instruments which doesn't have much to do with the original, but rather with, with what was decided in the 70s that should be, because maybe the first cornetto player or the first trump trumpet player, the first oboe player, it can be any instrument, uh, decided that actually I don't like it this way and then a new evolution branch takes off. Um, the Vienna instruments are a very good reference point for the wind ins instrumentalists. Those ones, you are never going to be able to touch them. <laughs> but they have uh, made very good measurements with CT machines. And those you can buy, at least a, a good deal of the measurements. They don't publish all of the data because it's endless, um, but enough to, to make rather accurate copies. Um, I have been called by a couple of museums to make um, bone flute replicas, as you say. There, usually the expectations are, this is going to be fantastic, it's going to make an amazing sound. And then you realize, well, actually it was a whistle from the, from the medieval time. And not every old instrument which has survived must have been a good instrument back then. Um, and of course, if you produce an instrument with 3D printing, which sounds great, People say, oh, that must have been then a fantastic original. And if your copy sounds crap, everyone says, well, there's something wrong with your 3D printing thing. Um, which is a very interesting soci sociological experiment as well. Hmm, interesting. That's, I, I, I've, never, I've never really thought about that like that, that. A lot of the instruments, I guess, that survive to our day and age it isn't necessarily because they were good or superior. I mean, sometimes they are, right? But uh, I guess sometimes it's just, they, they just stuck around. They were in someone's basement, I suppose, for hundreds of years, but it was just 
maybe because it was like you said crap <laughs> so they hid it yeah, in the I basement away i mean the the reference that we have now for the medieval recorders for instance it's like proper medieval recorders i think we have three of them and a couple of those were found inside letterings so maybe there is a reason why someone dropped them willingly or unwillingly into those spaces so then expecting that exactly that one that which is the only one that you have from a whole century is going to be a fantastic instrument it's weird it's very weird as an approach then a completely different thing is that if you have something like the rosenbock flute which is an ivory flute which is preserved in a in a certain collection and it was given to a king as a as a present that is made of a precious material i guess we can expect that one to sound but if you took something out of a lettering sorry i don't think that's a very good starting point uh, scientifically <laughs> can you go into that just a little more about the the latrine flute what wait a minute they so they put the i guess they put the flute in the toilet what do you well, mean Latrines are a very important place in archaeological terms. Also nowadays, actually, you know that nowadays uh, a big thing in monitoring what is going on in a city is taking uh, water samples and freezing them for the future and analyzing what's in there from the from the um, from the wastewater from a city. You you can know how much drugs are going around how many people are taking uh, um, drugs of, or medicines of certain types and you can also monitor uh, viruses um, they are now using the frozen uh, samples that they took in europe from uh, two years ago to see if there was already covid circulating around and things like that so that's nowadays. But if you go back in time, the letterings tell you which diet people had, um, which diseases they used to have. And um, it's usually, for, for instance, for the Roman cities, one of the places where you find uh, coins and jewelry by mistake, of course. Or people were either hiding stuff at an emergency or they, they dropped them there and didn't want to go and pick the thing back up. So. Actually, latrines are precious in archaeological terms, and some of the medieval recorders uh, that we have came out of there. And why and how did they end up there, down there? Um, it's a good question. Maybe it was a mistake. I, I don't think that you play the recorder while you're sitting <laughs> in the loo, but could be. Never know. Or maybe someone was just so annoying with the recorder that someone else took the recorder and threw it down there. I mean, I have been threatened <laughs> with that action several times during my childhood while I was playing the recorder. Oh, goodness. That's that's funny, though. I, <laughs> I can imagine just someone, like, you know, they, didn't, they probably didn't have magazines back then, right? So... You just pitch, just play the recorder. I guess some people may maybe drop it, but I don't know. I guess I I think what you're saying, perhaps the threat of you know someone maybe got annoyed, 
then threw it into the, the toilet. <laughs> that's far more likely. But that's that's fascinating. I've never heard of an instrument being found in such a condition. And was it preserved? Are are you talking about like a specific event, or is this something that happens? Is this something that happens quite frequently, or is this just one isolated event? Finding ob- archaeological objects. In, no, no, no. In specifically trains. instruments in latrines, specifically medieval recorders. I know of at least two medieval recorders. Um, it's a good question. I, it's a very good question. I know about wells where trumpets have been found. Actually, the only medieval trumpet that we have, it's the Goethe, I don't know what's exactly the name, was found at the bottom of a well. <laughs> so places where th- things fall and then you uh, can't pick them up again. Also shipwreck trumpets. That's a, that's a, an important thing as well. Hmm. So basically, in, in general terms, we're trying to reveal if you're into early music, and particularly if you're into early, early music, we're trying to rebuild a whole world based on little things which survive by random conditions. Because if something was made out of a precious material, it was usually recycled. I mean, no one preserves a, a very old-fashioned, 200-year-old useless trumpet. Let's say if there's a new thing in fashion, if it's made out of silver, sorry, the silver is way more precious than the instrument 200 years later. Uh, so we have very few surviving things, mostly by random con- conditions or because they just fell out of hand, shipwrecks, wells, veterans, and so on. And the same happens for, for the scores. Um, so most, as my teacher used to say, uh, medieval scores fell into three groups. Paper, which was the most used thing. All of that is gone because it, it just degraded from the medieval times. Then the best quality was parchment, books, and all of those we have lost as well, almost all of those, because they erased the parchment and wrote again on top of it 200 years later. So now they're recovering those by using very deep scans, looking for the traces of the metal of the ink and maybe you can see what was written and then it was erased. And most of what we have is in the middle category, which was like cardboard books, which didn't, uh, wasn't eaten by bacteria and it wasn't so precious to be erased and recycled and just remained in a corner and so on. So we're trying to rebuild something based on a couple of dots. Hmm. And it's usually the wrong dots, or it could be the wrong dots, or or we can have a completely wrong idea of how it was. I mean, even even though we know now that all of Roman and Greek sculptures and architecture, they were always colorful, there's no way we're going to picture Rome or make movies placed in Rome where you have just a shiny pink, uh, yellow, red, blue, um, Acropolis. It just doesn't work in our heads anymore. We had that idea that those buildings are marble, white, classic, even though we know for sure they weren't. Hmm. Interesting. 
You ever, you ever think that Cornettos might have been colored in the past? Perhaps we don't. <laughs> in much the same way. Maybe they have rainbow. <laughs> they have rainbow colorings. I think they sounded very differently the, than the way we expect them to sound now. Mostly based on the very few mouthpieces that we have left. The very few mouthpieces that we have left uh, are way more shallow. They have a very flat cup. And that produces a very bassy sound, which is brilliant if you want to play with shoms, bombards, sackbats that are very loud and we have a, which have an angry sound, like what you would like to have if you're playing from a tower, for instance, which wind players used to do a lot in the Renaissance. Um, instead, the cornetto that we have today, it's a very gentle, lovely, charming sound, which is lovely. Whether that's the sound that they had back then, it's an entirely different question. So I do think that they played in it and, and sounded very differently than modern recordings. Hmm. I suppose that leads to an, another question. What sort of elements, especially in, because uh, because early music seems to be your focus. You know, I, I do see that, you know, uh, on the 3D printed website, you know, you most most of the instruments seem to be historical instruments, whether they be slide trumpets, oboes, um, historical cornetti, so on and so forth. What do you see people doing wrong, I suppose, with regards to historical performance a lot of the times? Just as a general as a general thought, what do you see kind of like most often? Like, gee, that's not historical. <laughs> that's not historical, and that's not informed. <laughs> where do you, where do you see that most often? Oh, Oh, I, I would never qualify anything as wrong hmm. to begin with, mm -hmm. because um, that's too much of it. And then I would say, um, I would say that's historically inaccurate according to this, or um, right. that's a wrong interpretation. No, wrong sorry. isn't like I, historical, I, I suppose. Wrong isn't like. Uh, that's just incorrect historically not necessarily not making a value judgment like oh yes you you know don't <laughs> don't do this because mm. it's wrong and the history says it but just in general like what aspects of historical performance do we take for granted that are not necessarily historically correct maybe the the one which is more most clear to me um and that we're never going to really try to imitate the way it most likely was, is tuning. Meaning the whole approach to tuning. So if, you, if your starting point was that you were going to play in, in churches, that, that was in many areas for many types of music or the, the, the serious music, uh, the reference point was you're going to be in a church and you're going to have uh, an organ next to you playing the continuo or playing the background or doubling one choir and so on. So if you have a, a, a Renaissance organ in a Renaissance church without heating, that is going to move up and down a quarter of a tone, a third of a tone within a year. So you're not playing at 440, you're not playing at 415, you're playing the summer at 450 and you're playing the winter in the same place at 420. 
and you're using the same OGO and you're using the same Corneto and you're using the same Sackbot. Modern players, modern historical players are going to tell you that's totally impossible. And they even complain, come on, um, we are today playing at 442 instead of 440. I'm totally out of tune because of that. Okay, imagine that times 20 in both directions. <laughs> or playing in the morning in this church in Venice and, and in the afternoon in a different church. So the, we know they have different pitches. So did you have two Cornetti for those? Most likely not. And you can see in some books that for instance, the Blismantova book, he says, if you are going to be playing around, you need to carry with you extensions to your Conetti. So you're going to, if you're too high, you just put extra pieces of tube to both ends of your Conetti until you reach the, 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 the pitch of the organ. And if you're still too, too high, then you take them all and you try to transpose and you play one tone higher, trying to reach the tuning of the organ from the other side. Hmm. And that whole approach which must have been way more flexible. Uh, we're not going to do that again. So I'm not yet even getting into the temperament thing and the types of tunings internally within the octave. I'm just talking about pitch. <laughs> then with, with the, the, the internal tuning of intervals, that's also a completely different thing. I think that they, they, they approach it in a completely different way than, than we do now. And maybe to our ears, if we had the chance to go and listen to a Gavrilli performance, they would have been out of tune. On the other hand, maybe they were rocking improvisations and diminutions in a way we will never dare to do. Um, I don't have the proof for that, I don't have the time machine, but we approach that in a completely different way nowadays. Interesting, interesting. I never really thought to, I never really gave much thought until you said it to the different pitches of the different organs like i always heard about the bits Montova extensions i was like okay whatever you know, obviously whatever you think about fine adjustments in tuning not necessarily uh those drastic <laughs> changes like you're saying and that kind of leads me to think you know gosh everything must have been like so out of tune then back then it must have been so different just to listen to it just like you said the basic pitch of it is just it's just a question it's just a big question mark you know what i mean Man, that's pretty crazy. So the transposition of those Cornetto players must have been pretty crazy, huh? <laughs> Having to transpose. Uh, absolutely. Oh, God. Transposing back then was the daily thing, playing oh, in, in different keys. And, and that that kept on going, actually. And the, the different instruments, the instrument families, they, they also stayed at different pitches for a while. Even Bach cantatas, Make mixing wind and string instruments sometimes are written in two different keys because just the winds were at 466 sort of and the strings were at 415 sort of and that's better one tone apart from each other than than, than trying to tune together huh interesting that's that's fascinating that's that's a certainly a whole that's a whole nother topic for you know oh goodness that seems like yeah, imagine imagine that. Imagically a real historically, I suppose, informed performance, you know, just detune your organ, right? Go <laughs> go to your local church, you know, turn off the heating and see what you come up with, you know. That <laughs> if you really want to be historically informed. But that's really fascinating. I I never really considered that too too much before we started talking about that just now. 
moving on into a different direction though, right? We, we spent a lot of time in the past, right? Let's, let's look a little bit towards, I suppose, the future. I, I've seen some of the instruments that you make. Uh, and I remember in some of your videos, you described like 3D printed instruments, for example. You can make 3D printed instruments that you cannot make in real life. Like, for example, out of wood or out of brass. That would just be impossible to build out of these materials, but are totally doable um, in a 3D world. How, is that, how has that been, researching that and experimenting with those different types of wildly different designs for, say, brass instruments or any type of instruments for that matter? How has that been? Uh, for me, it's fascinating. Um, although my resources right now, just for wildly experimenting, are rather limited. That's the sort of research that you can only properly do and push forward if you have an institution behind you um, which could tolerate to have many many attempts and prototypes which are non-conducent or that may lead to something useful within many more iterations and that's expensive both in production uh, materials and time so i cannot indulge myself as much as i would like um indulging myself from time to time in uh, trying to do little projects where i can hopefully in as few as possible iterations reach something that i can present that i'm pleased myself with and um, so trying to use that as a bait for people coming with wild ideas so my dream is when someone comes to me with the idea of like, I need these two instruments into one, or I need this violin that you can take apart and fit in, in, fit in your pocket. Uh, um, and I have the money to, to, to develop this, the, this project. That's my, my dream customer, someone who, who wants to pay for the development of such a thing, and has the interest and the wild idea. The problem is that that's not really going to happen until people realize it's possible. We are in a, in a funny place now, right now where things are possible, but we're not doing them because we don't know yet that you can do them. And there was a funny period where we kept sending things. Maybe you didn't live that time, but I, I lived at the time where we still send scores, printed scores uh, per post, instead of sending them by mail, email, um, even though it was totally possible technically. But people still kept doing it for five, maybe 10 years more than it was necessary. Uh, and that was a pre pretty evident that we should move on and forget paper as the main mean. Um, of distribution and um, i think that this is going to take longer it's going to take not just five years but rather 20 years 30 years till people realize i ha we have more possibilities to produce something rather than by carving it out of wood in a workshop one by one or making a mass production factory where you need to produce ten thousand, otherwise it's too expensive um well we can produce 50 of something with 3d printing and it 
it can be uh, something uh, achievable and you can pay for it without needing to make a factory and without having a uh, someone carving the 50 pieces out of wood, which would take a couple of years. But until musicians, architects, designers, everyone else realizes that we can do this now with 3D printing, it's going to take a long while. And people keep already thinking of the projects they want to do in terms of the technologies as they were 20 years ago. Because until students start integrating that into the thinking process for the projects that they have in mind and, and stop limiting themselves to the technologies or the limitations with technology as they were 20 years ago, it's going to take a long, long learning time. Hmm, interesting. I guess that brings up another question in my sort of mind. Do you have a favorite instrument that you've produced, that you've made? Do you have a particular type or do you have a particular one that you printed and you were like, yes, this is my, this is my favorite that I've printed so far? Have you had that sort of experience? Uh, I'm well too biased. I am uh, a corneto player, of course. <laughs> I, I I love those, but I'm pretty surprised about the the research with uh, you know to produce brass instruments. I have developed these uh, slide trumpets, which is a natural trumpet with one slide, and no one listening to it with his or her eyes closed would say that's plastic. It sounds brassy. And it's funny because we have, we even say it, we say it's a brassy sound when it has certain characteristics. You know that as a trumpet player, don't you? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so it's actually the, we define the quality of the sound based on the material because all instruments made out of that material have that edge to it, which makes it brassy. And then you make a nylon thing, which sounds brassy. It's kind of a contradiction, a total contradiction. And then you start realizing, well, maybe it wasn't the brass. It's the thickness, it's, it's the shape. It's the surface. It's the proportions. It wasn't the material. Hmm. We, have, we would keep saying brassy, of course, because it's a, it's a great word for it. But you can make brassy sound out of something which has no brass in it. And that it looks totally different and it feels totally different in your hand. It feels totally different in your, in your lips. And then you blow it and it sounds brassy. It's, I find that fascinating. Hmm. I, I recently actually watched your, um, I, I think it was a talk that you recently gave for, oh, I, I don't want to butcher the name, music and something. It was a, it was a lecture you gave about, I think, why why haven't instruments changed uh, since like 1750? I think that was the name of the lecture. I, I could be confusing two different things, but in, mm -hmm. in the lecture, you 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 do a, qu a quite an interesting listening test. You know, you play the slide trumpet four times, you know, twice on the 3D printed instrument, twice on the brass instrument. And you say, well, close your eyes and see if you could tell them apart. You know, and I tried to do that. You know, I thought I was pretty accurate. I was like, okay. They sound similar, but you know, I think I got it. And I was I was totally wrong though. <laughs> I was totally wrong. Which just goes to, you know, it's it's not necessarily the material per se. It's the it's the shape and the consistency, I suppose, of it. And also staying on the slide trumpet, you know, I, I love that video I think you've recently posted of 
the slide moving back and forth on that on that spin wheel, you know, just that slide going in out, in out, in out, in out. <laughs> and in in some ways, I suppose that's even better than, and you I think you mentioned it in the video that it's kind of more efficient than the brass counterpart. You don't have to oil it, you know, if the if it's dry, then it just keeps on going forever and it's quite smooth, um, which I which I found quite fascinating because it seems like quite a noticeable improvement, you know as compared to a normal traditional brass instrument, right? Yeah, that experiment with the slide, it's, it's pretty funny as well. Um, the 3D printed trumpet I produce, it's like a third uh, in terms of weight of a brass one, which is fantastic on, on your hands. You, 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 can, you can play it in a much more comfortable way until the slide starts getting wet and therefore a little bit slower so there's a little bit more um, resistance from the slide moving and you wouldn't notice that if the instrument was out of brass because the force you need to use in order to move the instrument is three times larger and therefore a little bit more of resistance on the slide doesn't bother you because you are already using more muscle but Given the fact that this instrument is way lighter, then this additional resistance, it is kind of, you notice it because you're using way less strength in order to move the instrument in the first place. Uh, so it's very funny because, because of being lighter, then the side effects become more noticeable and people complain about them but you wouldn't complain about that if it was a brass well because it would be different you I, you would be already too tired actually to realize that that it, it was a problem and and that's a general thing in in developing new instruments that the expectations are way higher than for traditional instruments it's not the same it's definitely higher expectations even on, on, on the materials or materials being safe, like if I ever released a mouthpiece out of a material which could produce allergies or could be slightly toxic, I would be cancelled instantly out of the instrument making community with good reason. But at the same time, traditional historically informed mouthpieces are totally poisonous. They have lead in them. It's a historical mm. thing. Or corneto mouthpieces are made out of cow horn. There's no way a cow horn is going to pass uh, an aller allergy test. <laughs> and people get all sorts of reactions out of them, but it's the traditional material, therefore it's okay. But if you introduce a new material, the new material has to be totally food safe, allergy safe and everything. And, and that's a good improvement. It's just funny that the original thing, which is totally accepted, can be poisonous, produce allergies, be non-ecological as well. Like people uh, expect 3D printed instruments to be ecological as well. This is recyclable. Where is this, does this material come from? But they're totally happy to, to play string instruments uh, using uh, serpent wood um, bows. Funny, we just erased that tree out of the planet because of making instrument bows. There, hmm. is, there are no more adult serpent trees in Brazil because of that. 
hmm. and you ask me to be ecological. <laughs> that, that's that's funny. <laughs> that is funny, huh? Yeah, yeah. I guess you're you're right. I never thought about that before. You know, there's such a high standard. Everything has to be perfect, but everything back then was very imperfect. <laughs> I mean, just look at a regular Cornetto. It's quite, I mean, quite imperfect as it is. You have to do this sort of funny shape with your hands and you've, you know, and like you said, the materials are, especially if you want to be safe to the planet. I mean, it's covered in leather for goodness sakes. You know, you have to kill, you have to kill an animal and put its, you know, skin on top of the instrument. <laughs> so I guess it's why, yeah, it's pretty wild how these sorts of instruments are quite, uh, I suppose, ecologically unsafe, right? Especially boxwood. I think boxwood is a, an endangered species nowadays, right? Especially if you're a cornetto builder, you want to build cornettos out of authentic materials, you know? You have to kill a cow and get some boxwood. That's quite hard to find, you know? Oh, goodness. Yeah, if not ivory. If not ivory. Oh, that's a total. <laughs> that's a totally, that's a, that's a totally different issue, right? Yeah. <laughs> But um, th this has been awesome. I don't want to take up too, too much of your time. Uh, you, you probably have very important things to tend to. But just to, just to kind of cap this off, you know, where can people, where can people find you? Where can people find your instruments and the, the work you're doing? Well, I try to update my website with the new projects. It's 3dmusicinstruments.com, uh, 3D Music Instruments. And yeah, that's it. I think, uh, I, of, of course, the website is always uh, a little bit late or I have new things or some of the examples may be old, uh, but this is uh, basically a one-man show at this stage. And it's impossible to have a perfect website and customer relationship and uh, research and developing instruments and producing the things and shipping them. and and so on it's you, you can't do everything at the highest level but i'm trying so you can find information on the website there are going to be many typos uh, some of the pages are slightly old i hope that i will update them very nice. when i find the, the mistakes and so on thank you yes. very much for your time Ian. it's yeah it's been an absolute pleasure i've you know I, I love doing this. This was quite, this was a very, very fascinating conversation. And um, again, that website is three, let me read this correctly 3dmusicalinstruments.com. 3D music, not three, musical. Sorry. sorry, thank you for the correction. 3dmusicinstruments.com. And of course, if you go to the website um, where this podcast will be hosted, those links and all the links to the videos that we talked about and the conference videos will be linked. Um, in that description as well. And are, are you currently accepting orders for instruments at this time? Oh, I'm sorry, Ivan. I, I lost you for a while. Okay. Are you currently... Uh, can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Uh, are you currently accepting orders for instruments at this time? Yes, absolutely. Excellent. So if you want a Cornetto or any sort of thing, not in red... But I suppose, <laughs> and I suppose a different color. I see a ukulele here that's actually pink, which is actually quite interesting. Yes. But uh, in case you know you want a black or a white cornetto or anything that's not red <laughs> or any other different instrument for that matter, uh, I suppose go there and place an order. Or if you want something personalized, or if you really just can 
you only want to play a pink or a purple cornetto, write me about it and we can try to find a solution. That's the whole point of this thing is to make personalized instruments. Awesome. Well, this is this has been awesome. I I really loved I really loved chatting with you today. Hopefully, uh, you enjoyed the experience as well. And um, yeah, thank you for coming on the show. Likewise, likewise, Evan. Thank you very much.